0: You can go, everybody else, Haggai chapter 2, Haggai 2. So over a period of four months, from August the 29th, 520 B.C. to December the 18th, 520 B.C., God came to a prophet named Haggai speaking to the returned exiles from Babylon and Persia and they've come back to resettle the city and to rebuild the temple and so in those four months, there are four specific messages that God has the, for Haggai to preach to the people, kind of serving as an alarm clock to awaken them back to the task that God wanted them to do. For me, this has been pretty amazing to study and to teach um, uh, with us. This book was written 2,500 years ago. And, and I've just been incredibly reminded as we have walked through this of the, of the living nature of God's Word that it doesn't matter the age of, of written text, it has such relevance to our day today, and it is if this two chapter book was specifically written for the church in the West, and particularly the American church in year two thousand and nineteen, just some pretty amazing things that that this message has for us that God gave uh, to those people in those de- in those days and so the heart of all of this, all four messages was to speak to these exiles who had come back, and they were a broken people. Their city was broken. It still lay in ruins. They'd been back about 18 years, um, two years they had begun to building of the temple, and then two years, or for 14 years, they had stopped to do this. and so for the last 14 years, they had focused on themselves. There had been no focus on the rebuilding of the temple, and everything around them was still lying in brokenness and in ruins, except for their own homes. And their own self-interest had become the dominant priority of their life. And they had not come back fully with the right heart. And so that is what the third message was last week. And so this week, God is going to speak specifically, not to the whole nation, but He's going to speak to a guy with a great Bible name, Zerubbabel. Probably do not want to name a kid in this day and time, Zerubbabel. But what a great man of God that he was, a unique Time. He is in the lineage of Jesus, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. There's a uniqueness about him. He is an Old Testament picture of who Jesus would be, kind of giving us a, a foreshadow of some uh, reality um, about Jesus. Now, let me just mention this um, before we begin to get into the text this morning. As they come back to the city, I, I, it's an understatement to say it's overwhelming. I remember um, one day in, in Probably November about my probably my third year um, living in Dusseldorf, and I was downtown. I was eating at one of those kind of outside restaurants with a stand up stand up small table round table where everybody just gets your food and you go there and you stand and and so I was eating my food and and a guy came up and he was an older gentleman, and we began to talk and he began to share with me he said um, as we as we began. To to talk, he said, You know, I grew up in Dusseldorf. I've lived here my whole life. He said, You wouldn't believe where we're standing, what it looked like in 1945. The Allies had come in and bombed all of those big cities um, along the Rhine River. And he said, Everything that you see here was gone. It just was rubble, and my, we lived not far from here, and so my friends and I, we would come down here, and we would play in the ruins. We would crawl under the rocks, you know, dangerous, not real smart. We would get on top of them. We would play games, and so I asked him the question, I said, how long was the city like this, and he said, well, as you know, um, it takes a while to clean up all of that, and little by little, the people would come um, with wheelbarrows, and they would pick up the bricks, they would take them away, they would haul them away, and then you had bigger parts of these big buildings that had been just literally um, flattened. And he said it took quite a while for that to do that. Now, can you imagine just for a moment, you are God's people, the crowning jewel in God's heart of all cities of the world is Jerusalem. You've been gone for 70 years, and for 70 years, the city that is deep in God's heart, still key even in our day and time today, has lain in ruins. Now you have been back about 18 years. There's been the start of the rebuilding of the temple, and then the temple work had stopped. Now watch this to remind us. For 14 years, everybody just grew comfortable living among the ruins. Nobody in the nation was passionate enough to go, we've got to do something about that. What happened was they had lost the priority of God being front and center in their life as their first priority. And they turned to their own homes, their own crops, and their own things. And their own prosperity became the dominant theme of their lives. And they didn't come back fully with the right heart. They didn't come back with repentance. And so in these series of four messages, God is calling the people and giving them a prescription of what it looks like if, if God's going to bring restoration to a life, to a nation, to a people... What does that look like? And all four of these messages um, give us that picture. Now, I've come to know this to be true because I've been doing ministry now for a long time. I've met a number of people throughout my ministry life who have grown content to just live among the rubble, thinking it's just too much work to rebuild my life. I've, I've caused too much devastation in my life, in my family. Um, with my integrity, with my name, whatever the case may be. And they have grown content, just like the returned exiles, as I'm just going to focus on my own life. I would like for things to be different, but it's just going to be too much work. It's going to be too difficult to ever get things back to where there is a hope for today. There's no way, you know, how can I get a hope for today if I can't even do that? There's no way there's a hope for the future. And so I just want to exist. And so they have lived in such a way and have a mindset of, I'm just going to live among the ruins. And that mindset literally just says this. It reveals the condition of their heart that God's not about rebuilding things. And I want to remind you and I this morning, God is all about rebuilding and restoring. That's what He's about. Jesus came to reconcile us because we were alienated because of our sin. And He came in in His death on the cross, His blood that was shed, the resurrection... To to restore us by faith in a relationship in Christ. So today in the room, if there's anybody here who has grown content to just live among the ruins, and it may not be just your life, maybe it's your marriage, and you've grown to the say, well, it's just there's no hope for this ever to get to the place where it needs to get. There's no way. Um, I've so marred my name, there's no way that this can actually ever be restored again. And we could list a number of different things uh, here this morning. Um, The book of Haggai is for you. It is for a person, it is for a group of people, it is for a nation who is literally lying in ruins and is broken and needs to be restored again. And there are phenomenal principles that Haggai lays out for us um, that we need to embrace. And so what I want to do today is I want to, we're going <clears> to, <throat> don't panic, but we're going to walk back through the whole two chapters, okay? I'm just going to point out a few things. And uh, and we will get to uh, the fourth message to Zerubbabel um, as we close things out today. But you can't fully understand the fourth message that is important to us unless you understand the messages along the way. But let's read the fourth message, Haggai two, twenty, 20. And we'll read through the end of the chapter verse 23. This is still December the 18th. God's going to speak again Uh, earlier in the day. He spoke now the second time on the same day. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is December the 18th. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the Horses and their riders shall go down, and every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So let me walk us through. If you're needing restoration today, there's ever a time in the future... You need God to do a real work in your marriage, in your life, in your integrity, in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your um, lack of priorities, in your finances, whatever the case may be. What does it look like for God to bring about restoration in a group of people? And the first thing, um, we'll be very familiar with it, It's, it's my main message always, and it's this. If restoration is ever going to come to the people of God and to a believer, it's going to come when that believer sees the critical need for the word of God to dominate and lead a person's life. So four times over 4 months God speaks through Haggai to the people. Now when they were gone in exile, they were, were they were not without a voice. God was still speaking. Daniel spoke and wrote in the exile. Ezekiel wrote this really long letter and book about things while they were in the exile. God was also using, in the midst of that, when one of the kings wanted to um, had, had passed a law and there was this, um, this aim to annihilate every remaining Jew on the earth, there was a woman named Esther who was queen, whose husband was King Ahasuerus. And she went to him one day and says, hey, uh, I am of these people that um, are going to be annihilated. And she pleaded. And so God was using people during the midst of the exile to continue to speak and to save and rescue and give direction to his people. But these people have been gone for 70 years. Just think about it for a moment. If all of us just, just are up and scooped out of America and we're gone, And we die in a foreign land, we have kids, and and there's a a point in time where where that leader says, okay, y'all can go back to America, and you come back to America, and you come back, and some people have never lived in America, never lived in the city, there are people who came back, they had never seen Jerusalem, they were born in captivity, and they come back to a mess of a city that had been, been just destroyed mainly because they had rejected, watch this, the Word of God. This was their problem. Jeremiah, before Nebuchadnezzar came along and Babylon came through and and just wreaked havoc upon the nation and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah had been telling the people this is coming and it's coming because you've basically told God in regard to His words that you're not interested. Jeremiah 6, I'll read that here in a little bit, uh, speaks about that, that the people just said we're not really interested in what God has to say and so... So God continues to speak. Now let me remind us, God, there are not going to be new Bible books written. There's something called the canon. These books that we have in the Bible here today, it is settled, it's here. Um, there's not going to be new books, but this is God speaking still. We don't need anything new. It's, it's clear, it's, it's enough for us. And so God, while there's not Scripture being written, God is speaking. We are studying a book written 2,500 years ago that has unbelievable relevance right now on August the 18th, 2019. I think it's August the 18th, right? I think it is, yes. So much relevance to our lives today. And so the critical need for people to be restored again is to get back to God's Word. And what Haggai's generation, Zerubbabel's generation needed, is they needed to be reminded again that God was still speaking. And so through a series of four messages over a four-month period of time, God speaks to the people and reminds them, what is critical for you is to listen and to obey what I have told you and, and what I am calling you to be about. Now we know in chapter 1, if you'll look with me in verse 14 of Haggai, that When Haggai spoke this first message, there was a stirring in the hearts of the people. And so it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And so God spoke, their hearts were stirred, they got back to the work and the task that God wanted them to do. And deep in their bones, they knew that God was speaking. And if you've ever been in a place where you know God's word is just preached and 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 God has communicated His heart in a room in a place, and it's just a, it's an amazing moment where God is God is God is communicating with our hearts into our mind, His heart and mind, so that we would draw near and we would know that He is life. And so God speaks in the midst of these people who need a message, and He stirs their hearts to the task and and I, I love what it says there everybody was stirred did you notice that all of the remnant the high priest was stirred Zerubbabel, the governor was stirred and i'm sure haggai was as well do you remember the two guys walking with jesus to emmaus on the day of the resurrection and jesus unfolds everything in the law and the prophets and the psalms that were written about him and they're eating in a room and Jesus breaks bread, and they re- their eyes are open, and they recognize it's Jesus, and Jesus disappears. And they turned to one another, and Luke twenty four thirty two says this, And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And so what they need, what you and I need, is this great reminder. If God is going to do a new work and bring restoration to the American church, it's going to come when the American church comes back and says, God, we need to get back to uh, embracing and loving purely what you have spoken, and we're going to walk in that reality. So there's a critical need for them, there's a critical need for us to embrace the Word. Secondly, and this is the dominant theme of the first message in Haggai 1, is that we must center our life on God-centered worship as our first priority. So what had happened was, if you'll remember, they had come back to Jerusalem and they had begun to um, lay the foundation of the temple. Ezra 3 speaks about this as well. And they had laid the foundation of the temple. It was a great day that day. There was shouting, there was weeping. Um, There was this unbelievable movement. But then the Samaritans wanted to get a get involved in this, and the Jews didn't want the Samaritans to help rebuild it because while they were gone away in those 70 years of exile, this group of Jews that had remained behind had intermarried with the other people, and they were not pure Jews, and so in the rebuilding of the temple, they didn't want to do it, and so the Samaritans caused such a stink, they wrote a letter back to, um, to Darius, and, or Cyrus, and, the, and, and, the, and actually the Cyrus wrote it back, and it just kind of stopped, and for 14 years, they didn't do anything at all. And so the Scripture says there that they turned to their own lives and began to make sure that their prosperity was the most important thing. Here's the reality, folks. We are always going to have a treasure. Do you, do you agree with me? We're going to have some kind of treasure. And it's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be something else. And for a believer, if it's not Jesus, it's going to be something else. And so therefore, if it's something else, then, then our life is going to be less than what God's heart and God's purposes for us. Because when He's the treasure, and we are seeking the things of the kingdom of God, there's a perspective on our circumstances, and there, there's a perspective on all of our life that brings us satisfaction regardless of the circumstances. And so here you have this group of people. They've come back. They've given in to the opposition. They've quit the work. Um, Their own prosperity has become the priority. not Not the rebuilding of the temple and worship has kind of been gone. And they're living among the ruins. Everybody's okay with that. Nobody's passionate enough to do anything about that. And so their treasure has become themselves. Jesus had a lot to say about this. Let me just remind us of a few things. Matthew 6, 19. Do not... Do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can come in and destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there what? There your heart's going to be. If your heart feels misplaced today and you can't find it, then all you got to do to find it is, what's the dominant thing that you love more than anything else? And that's where your heart is. Because whatever we treasure, that's where our heart is. Jesus had this other encounter in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd one day said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge and arbiter over you? And he said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist. Listen to me. Listen to me. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do you have that pull in you like I do? Like sometime on Thursday, I'm by some store and I think, oh man, if I just got something new, it kind of you know, boy, feel good today, and you know, so I spend more money than I should and buy stuff that I really don't need because i got a closet full of stuff or i got a garage full of stuff. And, and there's this thing, we just think, if I could just have more, just more, more, more if I could just have more, then, then, I, then I'll, I'll find life if i got more. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. So he told him a parable, and he said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, Here's what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, and I said the first, it's always weird when you talk to yourself. So this man is talking to himself, and I will say to myself, my soul, soul, you have ample goods, laid up for many years, travel, chill out, relax, don't work for a while, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, For this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose are they going to be? So it is is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus in Luke 18, a little bit later, encountered a man who said, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, Okay, tell you what, go sell everything you have and come follow me. It says it like this. Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And I want to say this to us, if restoration is ever going to come to the people of God in this nation, and I'll just, I'm just being honest this morning, I think the church is broken in America. I think we're broken. I think we've had lo- wrong priorities for a really, really long time and and I, I think there's a lot of confusion about what's biblical and what's truly the gospel. And I think it's, it's wreaked havoc upon good doctrine and theology and families and students and children, on and on and on it goes. And I think we have allowed the world to drift into the church, and we've not tried to keep that mentality of, of we've got to market the church. You know, the New Testament church didn't have to market anything, they just were alive in Christ. And God did this great work. And so, this group of people, and there's a word for them that's a word for us, and it was this word. They had put their own personal prosperity over the spiritual life of the nation and of their own lives, and it had caused a devastating effect on them. And not only had that been the case, but then they began to use this word called time. You ever heard of that word, time? Priorities? things that we do, how we spend our days. And then they began to say to God, well, obviously, if God wanted us to rebuild the temple, then there wouldn't be Samaritan opposition. God, Because God's all about just smoothing the road for God's people so that it's just always easy for God's people. And so obviously God doesn't want us to rebuild the temple because the Samaritans wouldn't have acted this way. They wouldn't have contacted Cyrus and and we wouldn't have stopped. And, And so they lay on God that it's obviously not God's timing. Well, that's not the case. And I believe this excuse of not having the time is one that we all struggle with. I struggle with it. Let's just be honest today in the room. So they say in Haggai 1, 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, they hadn't talked to God about that, but they um, think, well, you know, surely God's on board with us, you know, because of what we think. Here's what it sounds like. I fully understand that God must be my priority. I'm for the temple being rebuilt. I have a rebuild the temple t-shirt I wear all over Jerusalem all the time. As a matter of fact, on my cart that my oxen take, I've got the bumper sticker that says rebuild the temple. I've got it on there. I've got a poster on my door. When I see people in the marketplace and people come to our house, I make sure that we always talk about rebuilding the temple. Hey, it's a great cause. I'm for it. It's a godly one. It's important. But the timing's not right for me. You know, my finances are not in order. You know, we've come back, and gosh, man, I've... Been spending so much time on my crops and my house trying to get things together you know my kids are playing three different sports and we're just running around in the car all the time and and we don't have time for wednesday night we don't have time for this we don't have time for that whatever the case whatever the case may be um you know when what here's what we say and when things calm down in my life then i'll have time and i asked this several weeks ago do things ever calm down no they don't and so we lay on god an excuse that God just goes, "Eh, nope, that's a priority issue, and I'm not your priority. And because I'm not your priority, you're not going to walk in my blessing. And if we want to walk in His blessing, it's going to come when the worship of Him and the taking serious as word becomes the priority of our lives. And I believe it's so easy for us. I know it's easy for me. I can only speak for me. It's easy for me to convince myself why God's not first in my life and to be okay with it. And how troubling is that when our hearts are that way? We just I can convince myself as I look in the mirror, well, I know that's kind of not right, but, you know, I just got this stuff that's that's going on instead of just going this okay Lord I'm going to take you what you said if I will seek first the kingdom and his righteousness then all these things will be added unto me but I take over and I think no God add the stuff and I'm going to seek you as you add the stuff you know kind of sprinkle some blessing along and it's just not that way and and this is the way the people so if there's going to be restoration in our lives and in the church it's going to be when God's word is priority and the worship of him dominates our life Thirdly, five times in the text, chapter one and chapter two, he says consider your ways. So let me just remind you if you've got your text open, go to chapter one, verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look at verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai two fifteen. Now then, consider. From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Now look at i got 2.18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Five times he says, consider. Here's what this word means in the Hebrew. It means take your heart, lay it on your paths, and see on that path, of your priority, what your treasure is, if you were to walk down that road, where would you end up down the road? Where would it end up? Would it end up at a place where God's, God's all over that and God's into that and God blesses that? Or is it going to end up in a place that's far away from Him? And this is what God is saying through Haggai. People, think. Think about where you're going. Think about your priorities. God's not blessing you. Drought has come. Hell from the sky has come, mildew has come. you thought you were going to have this much vat of, of vats of of wine and you, you had a half of that and all of this stuff and and god 's with god 's put a place of judgment upon you, and so you've got to get this right. And so he says, think about the direction that you're going. And here's what Haggai was saying. You are neglecting the priority of God being the center of your life, but still at the same time, expecting God to bring blessing with that. And God's not going to do that. So he says, listen, you've got to recommit to God's word. God's name and the worship of Him must dominate your life, and you must consider and think about Where are you going? Are you aiming at those things? And are you going to end up at that place? Let me share this text. Jeremiah 6. This is pre them being sent off to Babylon. And Jeremiah says these words. So applicable today. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look. Ask. Watch this. So what should I ask for when I look? Ask for the ancient paths. Not something fresh, not something new. Ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in that. Put your heart on it. Walk in that. And here's what you will find. You will find rest for your souls. But here's what the people responded. Jeremiah says, but they said, God, we will not walk in it. We're not going to do that. So, then God says, I set watchmen over you, like the prophets and other people. It's saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Boop, 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 boop. That's my best trumpet I can do. But they were blowing the trumpet. They were blowing the trumpet and and blowing it to the people to get their attention, to listen. And it says this, but they said, we will not pay attention to the blowing of the trumpet. And listen to what God says. Therefore, hear, O nations. And know, O congregation, what's going to happen to them. Hear, O earth, and behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, what they think is life, what they think is so important, what they think is going to bring them satisfaction. I'm going to bring disaster on what they think is going to be the answer, what they think is the answer to their life. Because, watch this, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. So I believe that if restoration is ever going to come, then we're going to make the word of God our priority. The worship of him is going to dominate our life. We're going to consider and examine our lives and get things in the right path if we need to. And fourthly, when we do that, and if we do that, we will have a confidence in the promise of God, knowing that his presence is with us as we take the gospel the nations. Look in chapter 2 with me just for a moment, 4 and (coughs) 5. This is the fourth thing this morning. We must have confidence if God's going to do something, we must have confidence of God's promise and His presence to be strong in the work. So Haggai 2, 4 and 5 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's why, according, I'm with you, because according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. fear not. Here's the reality. Here's what we need to see. Here's what we need to come to the place of being reminded of. Christ came. He was nailed to a tree in his body. He bore sin, our sin. He died. He rose. And all those who would come and place their faith and trust in Him are born again. They are saved. They are rescued. They are ransomed. They are reconciled. And in that great reality, God has placed His Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing that we belong to God and that we will live with Him forever and ever. In the Old Testament, listen to this. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit was present, but it was among the people. In the New Covenant, it's absolutely different. God was among the people, but now in the New Covenant, God is where? He's in the people. He's in us. Not among, but now in us. And so God is telling these people, listen, I want to tell you this. I have always been with you. When you went to Babylon, you were not alone. I was with you. When you've come back, I'm with you. When I brought you out of Egypt, when I brought this people out of Egypt, I was with you, and when I brought you out, I made you a promise that you would be my people, and I would be your God. And from all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham, before there was a law, through Abraham, that people would enter into a relationship with God through faith. God would do the work, faith. Would, would be what we would do. We would place our faith and our trust. And God would do this. And so watch this. He tells them, listen, I have always been with you. Now, you've checked out on me, but I've never checked out on you. I've been with you. So when you went away, I, I was with you. I brought you back. I am with you. And one of the things that you and I need to hear is, I, is I, I'm just deeply burdened about the church. I'm deeply burdened about us. And sometimes it can overwhelm and it just it saddens your heart. And you just want to go, gosh, can anything change? But I want to remind you and I, that's all that our God is about is, is change. He brings life. What was dead now is alive. What was lost is now found. And Luke 15 says, celebrate that reality. So this group of people have come back. They are are asked, consider your ways. But as you do that, I want to remind you of this great reality. I am with you. You are not alone. You are not alone. And this new covenant that you and I live in is so better than this promise that was made to them. Hebrews 8, 6, listen to this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And I tell you, sometimes when discouragement comes into our lives, it's hard to to wonder, God, where are you? let's be honest you've been there god do you hear god do you see god do you know and god is saying yeah i i know i know i know and i'm with you you're not alone you're not alone i am with you and then last week and this is the critical one and i think this is in many ways the essence of our issue so they're rebuilding the temple the greatest cause in their generation 520 bc if you were to go to any continent in the world and see what people are building and what they were doing nobody was doing anything more important than this generation they were rebuilding the temple of god no greater cause than that and yet there was something wrong in their hearts because when they had come back, they didn't come back with a heart of repentance. They came back probably with the right emotion, right ideas. But then they quit the work. And they didn't come back in repentance. Some of them were the problem why they were sent away. They'd lived sinful lives. they had rejected the truth of God, and so God sent them away to get their attention. And Now they've come back. Seventy years they were gone. So now it's somewhere around 84 years since they were gone, and they've come back, and they're kind of rebuilding the temple again, and great cause, they're they're into it, and and stuff is going, and they began to think to themselves this, because I'm rebuilding the temple, I'm holy. Because I'm setting up the stones where um, the altars are going to be, and there's going to be this worship, and there's going to be all this kind of stuff, these stones are transferring, in a sense, their holiness to me, so therefore, because I'm Doing a great cause for the glory of God, that holiness from the cause is being transferred to me, and so um, there was this mindset that they thought because the cause was so great, important, I didn't have to repent. I don't, I don't have to consecrate my heart. And so God, in the third message, comes to Haggai and says, "I want you to go tell the people that they have not consecrated and confessed their sin before me, and if they think that that the because the cause is so great that that gets transferred into their account, and therefore are holy and so he, answer, he answers these two questions if you go to the temple and meat is sacrificed and you take the meat and you put it in the fold of your of your garment and you go home and you take the holy meat out and you let the meat touch bread or you let the meat touch oil or the wine inside your house does the holy meat transfer its holiness to the bread and the wine and the oil and the priests say no but what what if i go and touch dead bodies which the Scripture says don't do that, and I don't ceremonially cleanse myself, but I come to the temple, and I'm rebuilding the temple with unclean hands. Is that okay with God? Does that bring defilement to the work? And the priests say, yeah, it brings defilement. Now watch this. I think this is is the, the critical need. Could it be the issue of why there's such a ruined condition of the church in our country is because God's people have decided that walking in holiness doesn't matter. As long as we're a part of great causes like making sure people aren't trafficked in sexual exploitation, as long as we fight for orphans, as long as we fight for this and our causes... As long as they're important, does God, does that outweigh whether or not our hearts are right with him? And it doesn't. And that was their issue. So God comes to the people and he says this. Just because you're building the temple doesn't mean you're righteous. As a matter of fact, you're actually, your hands are so impure, you're dragging, it's like you're dragging a dead corpse to the temple with you. Psalm 24 says this, who may stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So watch this. If you can't stand in the temple impure, how can you rebuild it impure? can't. So he calls them, listen, it's not the cause, it's the gospel. It's the truth of God's word. It's who God is. And so you've got to concentrate, consecrate your heart. The cause is never going to be greater than a consecrated life before the Lord and I believe this is so valuable to hear God is not going to bless a cause in Christianity no matter how noble it is like the temple if the people in the cause are not walking in a right relationship with God and holiness it could it be that we're saying God bring revival God bring revival God bring revival God awaken my family God awaken this and we walk unrighteously all week long and that was the issue with the people they're rebuilding, doing the right thing, but they've not confessed their sin when they came back. And so in the third message, it was a call to consecration that the people needed to get their heart right. All right, now we come to the fourth message. <clears throat> and it's a prophetic word. To is And so watch this. December the 18th, sometime earlier in the day, I don't know if it was before noon, whatever the case be, sometime during the day, God came and spoke to everyone through Haggai. And He called them. We've got to get our heart right. This transferring of the stones holiness even though the cause is holy and it's right it's God ordained we're we we don't we're not becoming righteous because of that righteousness comes when God cleanses us and we lay our hearts before him and so this call happened in the morning later sometime in that day on December the 18th 520 BC God spoke a second time did you know that God can speak twice in a day he can and so he speaks second time on this day and it's directly to a man named Zerubbabel well let me tell you about Zerubbabel His grandfather, Jeconiah, was one of the last legitimate kings from the line of David on the throne in Judah. Wicked man. Wicked man. Jeremiah comes to Jeconiah and says, this is what God's going to do. Back in those days, they wore signet rings. That if you wanted to officially affirm something, a law that had been passed on documents, you would take the ring, they would have the king's insignia. You would dip it in hot wax. You would put it on the letter, and wherever it went, it said this. The king is behind that. The authority of the king says that this is now the law. Jezebel did this. When, when Jezebel took Naboth's vineyards, um, she took some letters, and she took her, her husband's uh, ring, and, and she did this to, to, to make it official. There, this signet ring uh, identified ownership and authority and the one who was special and unique who could do this. Now to Jeconiah, God said, "I am. You're a ring on. You're the signet ring on my finger. You're on the throne in the line of David. But I'm taking that signet ring off. You're not going to be one that's going to be a part of this because you're a wickedness. And so God removed through a curse this reality. Well, guess who's the grandson of Jeconiah? Zerubbabel. If you look in the genealogy in Luke and in Matthew, Zerubbabel." is the last remaining descendant of the legal lineage of Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. Zerubbabel is also the last one in that line who had the blood of Mary, or Mary had the blood of him, eventually where Jesus would have the blood. So he becomes this one who God says, I'm restoring the line. Y'all been away for 70 years. I'm doing something new, and so I'm going to make you Zerubbabel. I had taken the signet ring off of your grandfather, but I'm putting it on you. Now, Zerubbabel doesn't sit on the throne. He doesn't know that Jesus, he he doesn't get to read that he's in the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't know any of that stuff. But God tells him, I'm about to do something through you that's going to bless and is going to last forever. And he becomes an Old Testament picture of Jesus. Who is the signet ring of the Father? Who is the one who has been given the authority to bring redemption? Who is the one who brings restoration? It is Jesus. And so just as Zerubbabel becomes this for this group of exiled people, this is a prophetic word said to Zerubbabel that says this, Listen, here's what's coming through you, Zerubbabel, I'm going to do something. And so he says there, on this day, on this day, I'm going to do something. And so this last word directly towards Zerubbabel was a prophetic word that said this, that God was sovereign and it didn't matter what the nations did. It didn't matter that they'd been gone away seven years, 70 years. It didn't matter that he had taken the ring after Zerubbabel's grandfather and there was no one sitting on the throne for 70 years. God can bring restoration, and He does, through Zerubbabel. And this word to Zerubbabel was not just for his generation, even though it was a word there. It was really a word about the future, that all the way in the future, there would be a king who would come. And he would have authority, and he would sit on a throne, and he would reign. And before he reigned, he would shake the nations, and he would shake the heavens. And he would overthrow the throne of nations and kingdoms. So listen to all these words. God has a plan and a purpose. What do you need if you're overwhelmed? You need to know that God's in control of things. And so he tells the rubble specific word to him. I'm in control of things. And I'm going to do something through you Zerubbabel, that's going to be so lasting. And so six times God uses the personal pronoun I. So he says it. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations. I'm going to overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down every one of them by the sword of his brother. And on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the word. In this room today, if your life is chaotic, the future looks uncertain. Is there any hope for my marriage? Is there any hope for this? Is there any hope for that? Here's what God says. Yeah. There's great hope because I'm in control of things. The nations aren't in control of things. Your spouse is not in control of anything. I'm the one who's in control of everything. So you, you trust me. You trust me. Trust me. That doesn't mean that somebody's going to continue that's connecting their life, live in sin, and there's going to be devastation, and there's going to be a breakup of something. But it means this, that as things crumble around us, there's a confidence God's people can have. And here's the confidence. God sits on His throne. And so let the nations rage. Let them plot. Let them mock God. God is with His people. And He tells the rubble, I have a plan. Nobody, when these exiles, 50,000 exiles came back, none of those nations outside of Judah were standing there going, Oh man, we're, we've missed y'all for 70 years. We're so glad y'all are back. Nobody was excited. They were back. The city was in shambles, the temple was being rebuilt. They had lost focus. They hadn't repented. Now they've repented and they're getting things right. And God's telling them, not only Zerubbabel do I have a plan today, but I have a plan all the way in the future that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 12 quotes Haggai 2 here. That in the future, God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then the writer of Hebrews says, Are you not glad that we're part of a kingdom that is unshakable? The kingdom cannot be shaken we can trust in him and so though judah had been forced to deal with bondage they had lack of resources there was opposition there was still a plan for redemption in place jesus would come in the fullness of time and he would bear our sin on the cross and he would provide for our redemption and every prophecy and every promise that god has made listen to me will be fulfilled. Every one of them. Well, lastly, verse 23, the crowning of Jesus as king of kings. God's promise of his choice of Zerubbabel as his signet ring should have brought great great encouragement to him and to the people and particularly to Zerubbabel in very difficult times. And so God says, I've chosen you. And in the ancestry of Jesus, Zerubbabel, as I said a while ago, is is listed in both the line of Mary and Joseph. And so this restoration 70 years later, with no one sitting on the throne, has been done because God is sovereignly in control over all things. Let me tell you about the signet ring. It was an instrument that the king used to seal all of his official documents and it was a symbol of honor and authority and let me just ask you this who's been given that great honor and authority who has the name above all names who has the name where every knee will bow and confess that jesus is lord so a ring held such high authority that it was it was kept and worn by the king at all times it was precious to him so nobody could steal it this is a prophecy of jesus about zerubbabel jesus is god's signet ring He's the one upon whom whom the Father has placed the official seal of honor as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we also, like Zerubbabel and the people of Judah, sin has caused a separation and led to a bondage, and it required God to restore things in the right line and place. And so Jesus came and he died, and through faith in him, we are born again and restored in a right relationship. Let me share two other things, and we're done. Richard Wolfe, in his commentary on the book of Haggai, writes this. Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, the true servant of God and God's signet ring. All that has validity in God's eyes, bearing the seal, the stamp of his approval, comes to us through Christ. Zerubbabel led Israel out of the Babylonian exile, and Christ delivered from the bondage of sin. Zerubbabel built the temple of God and Christ is building the spiritual temple of the church. Christ is the signet ring and through whom all divine purposes are sealed. And after the final shaking of the nations and we receive a kingdom that cannot be moved and all nations shall walk in light of God and he shall be all in all. It is important to affirm, he says this, that Zerubbabel is a type of Christ because these promises were not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's lifetime. He never ruled on a throne over Israel and he didn't live to see the thrones of the kingdoms overthrown and he didn't see his name in the genealogy of Jesus. But through him, God made a promise that down the road Jesus would come and Jesus would sit on a throne. Now, I was a part of a mission organization and I think probably for a long time, mission organizations have tried to have creative slogans to raise money for their causes and stuff like that. And they've misquoted the scripture in doing it. The mission organization I was a part of did this back when I was a, mission or, uh, a missionary. Psalm 2 is a prophetic word about Jesus, that he would inherit the nations. Mission organizations <laughs> use it as a slogan saying, let's, let's go to the nations and take the gospels so that the nations will become our inheritance. We don't get the nations in the sense we do through Jesus, but they're given the promise to Jesus. So I want to read this. I want to read it because it fits with Haggai. Why do the nations rage and the people's plotted vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. We don't want to be ruled by God. He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord holds them in derision. And then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, here's what I've done. I've placed my signet ring. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of this decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, Jesus And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, you better be wise, O kings. You better be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You better kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a prophetic word about Jesus right in line with Zerubb- Haggai Haggai 2:23. Down the road Jesus is going to come back and when he comes back he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom here on earth and for a thousand years he will reign. And the earth will be restored after all those judgments that you read in Revelation. And the lamb will lie down with the lion. Kids will pick up cobras and play with them like they're pets. And it will be as God had originally designed it. And at the end of that, Satan had been bound for a thousand years. He will be released. He will gather all these unbelievers that have been been born in the millennial kingdom. Because in the millennial kingdom, people still have to believe in Jesus to be saved. That is never going to change and they will gather and they will do battle and watch this. Go back to the first point today, the critical need of God's word. Jesus will speak on that day and he will slay his enemies. The way God works is through his word. Now I want to close with this thought. <coughs> From December, excuse me, from August the 29th to December the 18th, God spoke to a people who had come back and they were broken. And in four months, he said to the people, if you will do these things, then I'm going to bring blessing upon you. And they, guess what they did? They got things right. I want to pose a question to us today. It's August the 18th, 2019. What if, what if by the time December 18th, 2019 came over these next four months, all of us, first service, second service, no service people, whoever they are, said, okay, God, my heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all, my life in your hands. What might God do over the next four months? And I think... Five weeks ago, in my office, to my left and to your right, I'm trying to figure out what are we going to preach in the month of August, and I have no idea, and I start reading the book of Haggai, and I just sense in my spirit that this was exactly what we needed to hear. What if August 2019, 10 years from now, we look back and say, that was the turning point that we quit playing games about church, we quit just singing the songs, we quit doing. We, we took it serious, we took our faith serious, we took our finances serious, and we laid our life before the Lord and said, okay, Lord, do what you want to do. What could God do? And I want to leave that with us today. That's the question. What are we going to do over four months? And they didn't get it right immediately. It wasn't right until December the 18th, 520 B.C., that they decided, okay, we're on board, God. We're on board. and You ought to read the rest of Ezra and see what they did. And then read Nehemiah when he came back lots later, time later, years later, and rebuilt the walls around the city. What could God do by December the 18th? Because our option is to be like Jeremiah 6. We will not walk in that, God. No, uh-uh not going to walk in it or we can be the kind that says we will and we'll find rest for our souls and God will do a work that only he can do and I think that's why God wanted us to look at Haggai (laughs) this was never on my list to preach at life point not that it was bad I just had no idea 2,500 years ago this was spoken over a four-month period of time And I think for us as well. So what's it going to be, folks? What's it going to be? Are we going to say, God, we will not walk in it? We will not walk in it. Or will we say, we will walk in it? There's not an in-between. There's not an in-between. All right, let's pray.